Oh, okay, yeah, you you want to test us? If you want to be my lover, you got to get with my friends. Isn't that a weird song? Yeah, I mean... But you're, you're using get in the American version of the word get. Oh, uh, what does it mean in England? Like get along with. Oh, uh, if you want to be my lover, you got to get along with my friends. Yes. This is actually just calling for harmony, ain't it? If you want to be my lover... Oh, tell me what you want, what you really, really want. Gabe, your turn. I'll tell you what I want, what I really, really want. I wanna, I wanna, I wanna, I wanna. Who was your favorite? Did you like Sporty Spice? Welcome to the Katie Halper Show. I'm your host, Katie Halper, and I'm joined every week by my co-host, Gabe Pacheco. You can hear the Katie Halper Show every Wednesday at 7 p.m. on WBAI, that's 99.5 FM, and WBAI.org. You can also find us on SoundCloud and iTunes. Please rate and review us on iTunes. If you like the Katie Halper Show, please become Patreon members so you can access exclusive content like extended interviews, b-rolls, bloopers, and more. To do that, please go to patreon.com slash the Katie Halper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Halper Show. You guys, it's finally happened. I touched Bernie Sanders, and it was consensual. On August 28th, Bernie Sanders spoke at Riverside Church in New York City about many things, including his new young adult book, The Bernie Sanders Guide to Political Revolution. I was lucky enough to be in the audience for the event, which was sponsored by Harper's Magazine. And as Sanders left the church, he shook hands with the people in the two front pews, which included yours truly. He has very nice hands, they're very soft. All of this is relevant because on today's show, we bring you some audio from Sanders' speech and even do a little mashup between him and Martin Luther King for reasons that will become evident. Then I bring you a breaking news, fresh interview with Karina Moreno, an LIU professor focusing on immigration and securitization, and someone who, as she explains to us in the interview, was undocumented. And she talks to us about Trump's decision on DACA. Gabe, hello. How are you? Oh, I feel great today. Very important news. We're having our next live show Monday, September 18th at the Brooklyn Commons. That's 388 Atlantic Avenue. Guess who our next guest is? You're not going to believe it, guys. Hi. Jabari Brisport. My name is Jabari Brisport, and I'm running for city council in New York's 35th district. That's like Fort Greene and a bunch of different areas. I can't really... You don't need to know the... Do you, do you really need to know, like, the, the specifics, guys? That's Vinegar Hill, Fort Greene, Clinton Hill, Bed-Stuy, Crown Heights, and, of course, Prospect Heights, where I grew up and where my family's lived for three generations now. I've been an activist for 10 years, but for me, activism is no longer enough. I can't watch our city keep slipping further into a housing crisis and scrambling to house record numbers of the homeless, while also seeing billionaire developers make record profits on luxury housing. I can't watch broken windows policing keep tearing apart marginalized communities, and I can't stomach a 10-year time frame to shut down Rikers. Khalif Browder committed suicide after being there for three. I can't watch climate change keep accelerating and our planet literally melting while our city fails to divest its pension fund from fossil fuels. I can't watch as school choice advocates slowly but surely siphon funding from public schools into charter schools. But what I can do is run for office to fight for a better city and a better district. Jabari Brisport. He's running for city council. He's endorsed by DSA, Democratic Socialists of America. I am indeed the only candidate in this race running as an open socialist because I recognize that capitalism has run its course, like many of you recognize. And he's endorsed by the Black Lives Matter caucus. Whoa, what an intersection. What an intersection, right? Very handsome, too. Not to objectify him, but you're going to definitely want to see him in in person. Guess You just objectified him. 
Okay, to objectify him, you're definitely going to want to see him in person. Thank you. Do you you're know welcome. what? I embraced that Just own it, right? Yeah. Yeah. So you're definitely going to want to come to that. Get there at 7 p.m. Get there at 6.45. Get there at 6.45, yeah. Get some nosh. Get some drinks. There's a lot of energy in the air. There's a... It's like it's like a town hall meeting. Come on, guys. Do you come like on. fellowship? Yeah. Do you want to be around other people? Do you hate feeling atomized and alienated Ooh. listening to uh, podcasts on your headphones and never actually meeting other brethren that have uh, like-minded views? Yeah. Not that many podcasts do live tapings. We did it before anyone else. And then we do a Q&A, and then we do karaoke. No one else does that. You guys like karaoke? You can sing problematic songs, and no yes. one's going to judge you. Exactly. We all know where your heart is. Uh, always a great time. Gabe, you know where I was last night? Uh, you're going to tell me right I'm now. I'm going to tell you. I like doing that setup, and then I like when Gabe... You see, most they usually prompts a where or, or tell me, <laughs> but Gabe just does the declarative response where he predicts it. Or, you know, it could be imperative. You're going to tell me right now, but I think when you do, it's declarative, right? That's correct. Yeah, it was announcing, yeah. like a herald. Not... That, uh, <laughs> boom, boom, boom. Exactly. Katie is now about to tell us where she was last night. Right, as opposed to tell us where you were. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like but I can do that. Well, yes, like a cop or someone in the congregation that's like, tell me. Tell somebody. Tell me. Born again. Tell me. Have God done anything for you? Like, testify. Have you done anything for you? Testify. Have you done anything for you? Can I get an amen? If there's somebody here that know God have been good to you, I want to see if I can get a witness in here. I'm your witness. Somebody that's not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I need to ask you just one question, and that question is... Halper, tell me now where you were last night. Where the F were you? Can I get a witness? Can I get a witness? Can I get a witness? I was at Riverside Church, and I heard Bernie Sanders... Thank you. And he gave a speech. Let me begin by reminding everybody here today that the political revolution is not Bernie, it is you, each and every one of you. Before I get into my remarks, uh, let me express, and I know I do it for all of you and for everybody in the country, my condolences to the families who have lost loved ones in Houston, Houston and in the Texas area. Yeah. I mean, I'm not mocking that terrible tragedy. We're going to get back to that in a second. I wonder Houston. how he pronounces Houston Street. Bernie, give us a call. Just pronounce Houston. We're here. Uh, we had terrible flooding in Vermont a number of years ago, and I visited families who had lost their homes. It is a very unpleasant, painful situation. If there is any silver lining, however, it must be the profound reminder that we are one nation and that the American people and Congress will not turn our backs on the suffering and destruction now taking place in Texas. At a time when there are those who want to, want to divide our country up based on race, based on religion, based on sexual orientation, based on country of origin, at a time when there are those who hold and are pushing the ideology that says that every person in this country 
is in it for himself or herself, that the role of the government must not be to protect those who are in need. I am confident that the nation will come together to protect the people of Houston and of Texas. But also, it is not just the people of Texas today who need to be protected right now. Our hearts go out to all the immigrant families, to immigrant families in this country who are scared to death, to the young people on the DACA program for whom the United States is their home and there is no place else to go, to the African-American community which recoils in horror seeing Ku Klux Klan people and neo-Nazis march on the streets of America, to the gay community and to all of us who respond with disbelief at a president who wants to deny transgender people the right to serve in the military, to women who are fighting every day to retain the right to control their own bodies. So tonight we stand with the people. We stand in solidarity with the people in Texas, and we stand in solidarity with all those people who are undergoing oppression and suffering tonight. It was very interesting because Riverside Church, again, is where Martin Luther King came out against uh, the Vietnam War. I feel a little bit humbled standing here in the beautiful Riverside Church. And I am reminded, as many of you know, that 50 years ago, a few months ago, 50 years ago, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. delivered a courageous and powerful speech right here regarding the Vietnam War. Time comes when silence is betrayal. That time has come for us in relation to Vietnam. Over the past two years, I have moved to break the betrayal of my own silences and to speak from the burnings of my own heart. It was a speech which ruptured Dr. King's relationship to the political establishment of the time and to President Lyndon Johnson. As I have called for radical departures from the destruction of Vietnam. It was a speech which got him condemned in 168 newspapers throughout the country. Many persons have questioned me about the wisdom of my path. And what those newspapers were saying why are you speaking about the war, Dr. King? Why are you joining the voices of dissent? Peace and civil rights don't mix, they say. Who do you think you are? You're supposed to be a civil rights leader. Who gave you the right to speak out on issues of war and peace and morality and national priorities? Right, they want you to specialize. They, yeah. didn't, they didn't see the intersection between all of these things. You're supposed to fight segregation and racism. Segregation divorced from uh, economic exactly. injustice. Exactly, yeah. And when I hear them, though I often understand the source of their concern, I'm nevertheless greatly saddened. 
for such questions mean that the inquirers have not really known me, my commitment, or my calling. Indeed, their questions suggest that they do not know the world in which they live. In the light of such tragic misunderstanding, I deem it of signal importance to try to state clearly, and I trust concisely, why I believe that the path from Dexter Avenue Baptist Church, a church in Montgomery, Alabama, where I began my pastorate, leads clearly to this sanctuary tonight. King being the incredibly courageous person that he was, understood that he could not speak about nonviolence in this country without condemning the extraordinary violence that was then taking place in Vietnam. There are obvious and almost facile connection between the war in Vietnam and the struggle I and others been waging in America, for it grows out of my experience in the ghettos of the North over the last three years, especially the last three summers, as I have walked among the desperate, rejected, and angry young men. I have told them that Molotov cocktails and rifles would not solve their problems. I have tried to offer them my deepest compassion while maintaining my conviction that social change comes most meaningfully through nonviolent action. But they ask, and rightly so, what about Vietnam? They ask if our own nation wasn't using massive doses of violence to solve its problems to bring about the changes it wanted. Their questions hit home, and I knew that I could never again raise my voice against the violence of the oppressed in the ghettos without having first spoken clearly to the greatest purveyor of violence in the world today, my own government. For the sake of those boys, for the sake of this government, for the sake of the hundreds of thousands trembling under our violence. And that was Martin Luther King's speech at uh, Riverside Church. It was beyond Vietnam. People love, 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 love citing his I Have a Dream speech. But the really daring Yeah, you got to one... re- watch that one when you're in third grade in school, in fourth grade in school, in fifth grade. They, they wheel out the, v- the VCR, now it's a DVD player, and... You got to watch this black and white footage, and it seems like it's from hundreds of years ago. And the man was a saint for a dream. A saint for a dream. I believe that's what that's what they and call they it. Don't, yeah. They didn't talk about the nitty and the gritty and what he was. Uh, they didn't really. They don't really go into what he was doing on a daily basis. Right. And the work, the work you got to put in. He did the work. He did the work. Yeah, so that's a great speech. That's, of course, the thing that does not get cited as much as I Have a Dream. People probably know this, that when he died, he was um, at a rally for sanitation workers in Memphis. And he had planned to do the Poor People's Campaign. So, yeah, as time went on, he became more and more intersectional. Bernie Sanders, at some point during the speech, he said, you know, it reminds me of the old Woody Allen song. It reminds me of the... Bernie Sanders. It reminds me of the Woody Allen song... Uh, which side are you on? It is high time that the Democratic Party remembers the old Woody Allen song. 
Which side are you on? And Which Side Are You On is not actually a Woody Guthrie song, but it was just hilarious to hear him mix up Woody Allen and Woody Guthrie. The rest of the country looks upon New York like we're we're left-wing communist Jewish homosexual pornographers. This land is your land, and this land is my land. California. This is worse than California. New York Island, from the Redwood Forest to the Gulf Stream waters. There's an intelligence of the universe. This land was made for you and me. With the exception of certain parts of New Jersey. As I went a walk in that ribbon of highway, I saw above me that endless skyway. I look around the world. Saw below me that golden valley. All I see is human suffering. This land was made for you and me. Loneliness and misery, and it's all over much too quickly. To you, I'm an atheist. To God, I'm the loyal opposition. I'm a pacifist. I don't believe in war. And Which Side Are You On, by the way, was written by Florence Patton Reese. Uh, in 1931. And she was married to Sam Reese, who was a union organizer for the United Mine Workers in Harlan County, Kentucky. And uh, it's a very moving song. Come all you poor workers, good news to you, I'll tell how the good old union has come in here to dwell. Which side are you on? Which side are you on? This is a version by Pete Seeger from 1963. Which side are you on, boys? Which side are you on? Which side are you on, boys? Which side are you on? They say in Harlan County, there are no neutrals there. You'll either be a union man or a thug for J.H. Blair. Which side are you on, boys? Which side are you on? By the Weavers, also from 1963. I found it endearing to hear him mix up Woody Allen and Woody Guthrie. Gabe's nervous. Gabe's like, do not throw Bernie under the bus. We are going to cost him his political career if we yeah. expose this. Oh, man, he's going to be a laughing stock in countless think pieces for the Woody gaff. <laughs> the Woody gaff, yeah, exactly. I thought it was funny. I thought I was going to get a bigger laugh from Gabe about the Woody Allen, Woody Guthrie thing. But... It's, the old, it's the old stuff. I mean, Woody Allen is what eighty something now. Yeah, he's just outside of my pop culture references. It's I, I like Woody Guthrie. I mean, even you know, older. Yeah, even what, deader. Actually, dead. I don't really like uh, folk music, so it doesn't matter to me. If Woody Guthrie was alive today and he was like an You'd EDM, punch him in the face. I would punch him in the face. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's interesting. Apparently, he wrote a song about Donald Trump's dad. Who Look did Woody Guthrie? Which is all bringing it back full circle. Old Man Trump, it's called. I'm not even making this up. Ready? Old Man Trump was uh, a song that Woody Allen wrote about the unbelievable story of why Woody Allen, Woody, oh my God, I can't believe I just did what Sanders did. 
The unbelievable story of why Woody Guthrie hated Donald Trump's dad. So Woody Guthrie, folk singer Supreme, is known for the magisterial portraits he painted of Dust Bowl America and his sweeping indictments of social injustice. In one of the strangest stories yet to emerge from Donald Trump's presidential campaign, it appears that more than half a century ago, Woody Guthrie penned lyrics condemning the candidate's father, Fred Trump, for racism. Will Kaufman, the professor of American literature and culture at Britain's University of Central Lancashire, unearthed the scoop. So this guy Kaufman, he was sifting through the Guthrie archives, and there in one of Guthrie's notebooks which contained pages upon pages of lyrics, never set to music, he found these lines, written in the early 1950s. I suppose old man Trump knows just how much racial hate he stirred up in the blood pot of American hearts when he drawed that color line here at his 1800 family project. Beach Haven ain't my home. I just can't pay this rent. My money's down the drain and my soul is badly bent. Beach Haven looks like heaven where no black ones come to roam. No, 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 old man Trump, old Beach Haven ain't my home. Now, Beach Haven was an apartment building erected by Fred Trump, Donald Trump's dad. That's old man Trump. Uh, It was actually built to house veterans returning from World War II. And Woody Guthrie was a merchant marine in the merchant marine and moved there in 1950. Donald Trump is a piece of, uh, you know, he's uh... (laughs) a... Or Donald Trump's dad, yeah. Well, I know, but they're both in real estate in New York, so they're garbage. And Jared Kushner is also in real estate, and it's just interesting that um, that is seen as a legitimate industry, uh, especially in after we look at uh, how the entire foundation of the industry is based on redlining and uh, racial segregation. And, you know, uh, I don't know what else to say about it. Gabe is very over it because he knows <laughs> a lot about this stuff. It's true. Yeah. I haven't, I haven't lived and loved the way that Gabe has uh, in, the, in the industry of, <laughs> well, of real you know, estate. I just think now I wonder what's going to happen in, like, Houston. I was thinking about Houston, and I thought about the last, like, couple days ahead of uh, the storm actually touching uh, down. I'd been reading Naomi Klein's Disaster Capitalism and um, just thinking about how when uh, Katrina hit, Blackwater was... uh, was mercenary boots on the ground in New Orleans. So we were using mercenary forces at that time to police the streets. And I was wondering uh, how long it'll be until uh, we have a, a new like mercenary army policing the streets in Houston and what's going to happen to the devastated neighborhoods. I'm imagining now that there's going to be luxury condos built on stilts uh, in mm. um, poor neighborhoods that are uh, being wiped out there. Uh, that could be the case. Who knows? What are the other options? That it just goes underwater? Oh, man. Well, there's also Superfund sites where there's, uh, you know, lots of um, uh, pollutants in the ground. So, uh, like, Greenpoint, Brooklyn is a Superfund site because there's a giant oil spill that's underneath the ground there, and the soil Whoa. is uh, toxic. So there's high rates of, of cancer, higher rates of uh, specific cancers that are in Greenpoint right now in the industrial part of the uh, neighborhood, but also um, you have super fun sites in uh, Houston where uh, lots of chemicals have been buried. And now with the uh, torrential downpour, it's just going to make like a like a nice toxic uh, soup. Soup, um, uh, 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 a bisque. Yeah, yeah, wow. cancer bisque. Can- <laughs> Wait, so should we avoid Greenpoint? 
Uh, you know, it's all it's all underground. Okay. So, like, as long as you don't grow uh, like plants, like right. as long as you don't have like tomato tree uh, <laughs> vines in your backyard, you're like, mm, eat these heirloom tomatoes. Uh, you'll be fine. Good old heirloom tomatoes laced with carcinogens. Don't you don't even need condiments because you got the carcinogens in there. They add some flavor. Yeah, just don't go digging. Just don't go digging. That's a good advice in general. So, just wanted to update you guys. This is our our segment called "Would You Like Some Coffee with That Smear." With that schmear, some schmear. Maggie Haberman, who's a New York Times journalist, you may remember her guys as laughing at Keith Ellison as he warned that anybody uh, well, from the Democratic side of the fence who's, who's terrified of the possibility of, of, of President Trump better vote, better get active, better get involved because this man has got some uh, momentum and uh, we better be ready for the fact that he might be leading the Republican ticket. And we see him saying that and then... We see George Stephanopoulos saying, I know you don't mean that. And Maggie Haberman laughing, going, sorry to laugh. Next, <laughs> I know you don't believe that, but I want to go on. <laughs> sorry to laugh. It's really obnoxious and smug. So you guys know that recently Donald Trump pardoned Joe Arpaio, Maricopa County Sheriff in Arizona. You know, the hurricane was just starting. Uh, and I put it out that I had pardoned, uh, as we call, as we say, Sheriff Joe. Great Sheriff Joe. His jails were horrific. He ran something called Tent City. Oh, Tent City, man. I can't wait till they make a movie about that place. You know what? 140 degree uh, temperature outside in the middle of the desert. The uh, it, it basically, it sounded like Woodstock 1999. Uh, just a giant uh, tar- uh, tarmac of uh, despair. A terrible nightmare uh, uh, environment where there was uh, riots and fires. and uh, Set to Joan Baez. I dreamed I saw Joe Hill last night alive as you and me well not the 1999 one I don't know anything about Woody Guthrie but I can talk about Woodstock Woodstock. Sheriff Joe is a patriot Arapaio is a really disgusting person. Just to give you a sense of what happened in his jails, he baked a woman alive. Her name was Marsha Powell. Died May 20th, 2009 after being kept in a human cage for four hours in the blazing sun. She died of heat exposure and she suffered burns and blisters all over her body. It's really disgusting. This is so great. Guys, don't worry. It's cool. Uh, The prison policy limited uh, that outside confinement to a maximum of two hours. And it's kind of like that guy, Darren Rayner, who we talked about, who was boiled to death in a shower in Florida. That's correct. So just, you know, it's this nice little callback. He's very strong on borders, very strong on illegal immigration. Also, by the way, because Arpaio was so obsessed with rounding up, quote unquote, illegals, he let like 400 uh, cases of rape go. Like he just didn't investigate them. Yeah, because it wasn't wasn't the priority. And he had to allocate his uh, resources Resources, towards... Uh, hunting down and imprisoning immigrants. Right, exactly. Undocumented. Yeah. It's not an awkward word. I know it's like the politically correct word, but what's wrong with immigrants? I I don't know. Let's bring it back. Yeah. Okay. Is it? I don't even know if it is politically incorrect. Well, they say undocumented. Yeah. Undocumented workers. But what if you're not a worker? I mean, there are people who get there and they need to find their job, you know. They need to deport... uh, employers yes if you hire undocumented workers you get rid of the employers you make them go back to honduras to live yeah in the house where the worker used to live yes 
I think that's the great. The worker gets to stay here and run the factory because I'm all about collectives. Right. But you send the owner back. I like it. Bernie, are you listening to this? And if the owners are really uh, have an entrepreneurial spirit, they will raise the economies of those third world countries that the immigrants came from. Right. And Sheriff Joe was very unfairly treated by the Obama administration. I thought he was treated unbelievably unfairly when they came down with their big decision to go get him. By the way, the thing that um, Arpaio was supposed to be sentenced for was um, criminal contempt. He's going to be sentenced in October. His crime was refusing to stop racially profile, racially profiling Can't people. stop, won't stop was exactly. his uh, mantra. Exactly, yeah. He is loved in Arizona. Arpaio's officers burnt a puppy alive. Just burnt a puppy. Yeah, you know, because it was Sunday and that's what you do on weekends. Yeah, exactly. Right after church. Yeah. Uh, He's done a great job for the people of Arizona. Now, Arpaio also used to sell uh, pink boxers that he signed and pink handcuffs because he's sadistic and probably pathological and sociopath because he would make some of the prisoners wear pink clothing underneath the striped prison garb, pink clothing, pink socks, and pink flip-flops. And he pretended it was to calm them down, but it was, like, so obviously to humiliate them. There was a rapper in one of his jails. Yeah, we'll have to Wikipedia who up that was. Up in here, was. up in here. I think DMZ. Uh, it, well, there's a DMX is a rapper. <laughs> DMZ is that place <laughs> in North Korea uh, that divides it from South Korea. You know what? There's another rapper you don't know about. He's Korean. Uh-huh. And his name is DM, DMZ. No, yeah, DMX. He was in one of his jails, and there's actually video of him talking about that. This jail is ridiculous. It's disrespectful. Come on, pink? What, the, what, what does that have to do with, with being in jail? Why, why, why the pink? Why the pink shirts and underwears? And what, what is that all about? Do you think you've gotten a fair shake here? Of course not. No. I was never arrested at the scene of any crime. I, or, you know, the police came and arrested me for something. You know, it was always, uh, let's get an arrest warrant for this guy, you know? You think Arpaio was after you? I'll let the uh, public answer that one. You know, it might look like it, but I I don't know if that was the case, so I'm not going to say that that's what it was, you know? But um, we're all God's children, and um, I do pray for that man. Anyway, he's a disgusting, disgusting racist, sadistic, so not surprisingly, Donald Trump pardoned him. So um, I stand by... My pardon of Sheriff Joe. Thank you very much. I have to say, he actually makes Donald Trump look like a kind, compassionate mensch, by contrast. Right, right, right. Uh, he's just, uh, Donald Trump seems less evil yeah. than this 85-year-old um, demon. <laughs> he is a demon. I fell in love with Arizona. I said, you know what? This has to be God's country, you know, because I've never seen anything as beautiful. Then I met the devil in God's country. He's really ugly. He looks like a troll. He's like a character from Blood Meridian that was brought into the 21st century. That's a book, a great Cormac McCarthy book, about white people that went out west and scalped uh, Native Americans wow. for, um, for, their, for money. All right, cool. And they just ended up scalping everybody with black hair because they got paid by the scalp. Oh, so like a white person with a, with yeah, some raven-colored hair. Totally. Blood Meridian. So Bernie Sanders tweeted, By pardoning Sheriff Arpaio, President Trump has once again made clear where he stands on the side of racism and discrimination. 
Now, Maggie Haberman thought this would be a good idea to tweet, worth recalling that Jane Sanders appeared with Arpaio once and toured his tent jail. Okay. Right. The implication is that this was uh, sort of tourism. Yeah. Where uh, Jane Sanders was just like, you know, sometimes I like to go visit favelas and sometimes I like to go visit, uh, you know, what what sort of uh, misery tourism can I engage in? Let's go check out this uh, concentration camp in the middle of the desert. Right. And also it's the implication is that she was like like it was a photo op. Like right. she was con- like she was co-signing Arpaio. Now, we actually on the Katie Halper Show live taping coming full circle had Eric Andiola as a guest. Eric Andiola. She shared how how she was the one who took Jane Sanders to to look at Tent City and and Jane Sanders was ambushed by Arpaio. I'm actually from Arizona. So, you know, one of the very very important issues for uh, communities of color there is making sure that we get rid of Sheriff Jarapayo. Folks come over to Arizona, we give them a tour of the different uh, places that really signify anti-Latinos, anti-immigrant uh, sentiment that has been uh, in Arizona for so many years. So, you know, we take into the different jails, we take into different detention centers so they can see the reality of Arizona. So we decided to take Jane to um, see from the outside Tent City, huge jail, and you literally start seeing tents outside with inmates, and you can see them from outside under 120 degree weather, which is inhumane. So we wanted to take her to see this outside, and of course, Jarapayo decides to make it his own show, and while she's looking outside at the jail, he comes out and greets her. She starts questioning him about these inhumane conditions, um, but of course, the only thing they saw was pictures of him coming out and greeting her, and of course, Twitter started blowing up with his pictures. Um, and the Hillary campaign started using the pictures to say that she was meeting with Arpaio. But, you know, fortunately, uh, we had a tons of press who actually went with her and told the right story. And the next day we had local activists who were actually thanking her for her courage and for the ability to talk to Arpaio in a very calm way, but also confronting his um, anti-immigrant racist um, policies. And Maggie Haberman, again, thought it would be a good idea to bring up this smear. Now, what's so fascinating about it is that this smear was first developed in March, okay? And it was such a bad smear because it was so implausible. The smear being Jane Sanders had a photo op with with, uh, Arpaio as if she was trying to court his his supporters, as if they would ever go for Sanders, right? Right. And and two gems, pretended that this was, and spread this rumor that this was like an attempt for for Jane Sanders to be chummy with Arpaio. This was such a bad smear that it's been deleted by most people because other people spread this rumor. They've deleted their tweets because it was so embarrassing and it was so debunked. And it was fake news. It was fake news, it was. And from Tom- the New York Times. Hate to, hate to have to say it, but... You know, fake news comes from the New York Times. Yeah. To hear the rest of this discussion, make sure you join our Patreon at patreon.com slash the Katie Halper show. But don't worry, I'm not going to leave you hanging right now. We're so excited to be talking to Karina Moreno, who's a professor at Long Island University, Brooklyn. That's LIU in Brooklyn. And she's a professor in the public administration department. She is an immigration and securitization specialist. That's her area of focus in her research. She writes for places like Jacobin. Karina is a native of Monterrey, Mexico, and she's been on the show before because she's uh, not just an expert in these issues, but she has a really great political analysis. And friend of the show. Friend of the show. Friend of F-O-T-S. the show. F-O-T-S. <laughs> F-O-T-S. Yeah. Good. G-F-O-T-S. Good friend of the show. Repeat <laughs> offender. And, uh, you know, there's 
really awful news that we want to have her insights into, which is Donald Trump's announcement to end DACA, which is Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, which was a signature immigration policy enacted by President Barack Obama. So, so set it up for us, please. What is DACA? What is happening? What just happened? And then we'll look at your kind of like particularly interesting view, I think, which is how the Democrats failed. Okay, so DACA is defor- Deferred Action for Child Arrivals. Breaking this down in an easy to follow way. Uh, Obama used executive, an ex- executive order to, to pass this in 2012. It is a two-year permit. It's only for children who arrived to the U.S. Um, younger than 16 years old and, and were not 31 yet in 2012. So it, you had to be within, you, you had to be a certain age, age group. And it lets you have an ID and authorization to work. The, the most recent number is about 790,000 DACA recipients. 91% of them are employed. A full 100% of them have a clean record. Um, they pay $500 to renew their DACA every two years. So it's a million dollar you know, revenue for the government. The average age of them is 26 and the average age at which they entered the US was six years old. You have to have an impeccable clean record. You can't have I mean, no, even like parking tickets, traffic, none of that, like your record has to be completely clean. And so that's what it is. It's a two year permit. It lets you work the practicality of this. So how does this like, what is this? Why is it such a big deal? It's a big deal when you think about having to get a lease to rent an apartment, having to cash a check at the bank, having some sort of ID on you in case you're pulled over by police. A lot of the immigrants who get pulled into the jail to deportation pipeline, it's just random little stops with police over some sort of traffic thing, but they don't have any ID and they get, they get pulled in, then they get picked up by, by police and ultimately ICE uh, for not having ID. There are hundreds of, of cases. So it's really important to just to be able to have a valid ID on you. In certain states, you can do um, in-state tuition instead of out-of-state tuition, which is, which is a, what happens if you're on documents in the U.S., you want to go to college, you can't prove your citizenship, they charge you out-of-state tuition. Uh, and you're not, of course, eligible for any type of financial aid, not even student loans. So yeah, it's, it's actually a pretty big deal in the sense of like practical everyday life of getting around. The problem is that it was completely built upon the assumption that Obama would be handing over the office to a Democrat, to Hillary, and the, and the program would keep going, but that's not the case now. And so as soon as Trump became president, he, he, we, knew, we know how he feels about immigration, and so it didn't come really as a, as a surprise. So we knew that this was coming. So Sunday evening, we got the announcement um, that they have decided to not grant any new permits to anyone applying. They're going to start the enforcement within six six months. So on their website, they say DACA has changed, uh, no longer accepting initial requests as of September 5th. Renewal requests are going to be accepted through October 5th of this year. And current beneficiaries, the latest that they'll have their DACA 
benefits will be through March 5th of next year. Okay. Now, who, do you know anyone here on DACA? Yes, a bunch, a bunch of people. Um, a bunch of young people, right? So they're all young because they have to be, in 2012, they had to be under 16 and not yet 31. So th these are all young people who were brought here as children with their parents being undocumented. And so, yeah, I know a bunch of them when I was doing my research in Arizona and here in New York City as well. I've, I've messaged a few of them. I've reached out to a few just to get a sense of like what's, you know, how, how they're feeling, how they're doing. And the, the sentiment is very like, well, yeah, of course. It's, not, it's no surprise. It's, um, you know, still in limbo. It was always limbo. It was only a two-year program. Um, it's expensive. There's an application cost every time you apply to re to renew it. Um, so it is it is like an it, there is an economic benefit to having it. People will pay upwards of you know five hundred dollars every time just to have this the peace of mind, um, right. even if it's temporary. Were they devastated? I mean, how were they responding, or were they kind of expecting it and already? I think it's been. I think the sort of of course, devastated, but that's been something looming since November. So, of course, devastated, that sort of, like, devastation has just continues to be, like, you know, frustration, and it's terrible. It's, I, I, I there is, a, I used to be undocumented, right, and I, I've mentioned this before on the show, I used to be an undocumented immigrant from Mexico, and there is no worse thing than feeling like there's a black cloud hanging over you all the time right as you move through your day you still feel very uneasy so it's hard for me to communicate like of course i i, I get how they feel i understand what they feel because it's back to this like insecurity and back to this like the, that's the the worst sort of like precariousness right where you don't even it's like you're not even part of the the legality framework that we try to enforce that, you know, Donald Trump is trying to enforce. And so you're completely sort of hopeless and you don't have really any control in the matter. And, and it's, it's an, it's a really, really devastating thing to live with every single day. This sense of insecurity, the sense of dread. You don't want to come across any police ever. You don't want to draw any attention to yourself. You're just, I mean, I would just say it. It's like, imagine just walking around with a black cloud over you. And it's like, even you feel the sort of anxiety in your stomach. You feel like this sort of dread all the time, even when you're having a good day, you know, in the back of your mind, it's very present and it's very present. It's very also like socially uh, controlling this message of like, you don't belong here. Mm. You know, the sense of you don't belong. And, and that's also something that's very, very powerful because I've, since then I was, you know, really fortunate enough to have gone to an immigration judge and like I became a, a resident I just recently became a citizen finally and this sort of feeling of you don't belong still sort of lingers you know you don't really feel that this this belongs to you this you know this government that you pay taxes to 
You're saying even you, who, mm-hmm. and as someone who is not just documented but a citizen, you still have the kind of lingering feelings. That sort of shame really, really stays with you of, you know, you did something wrong. And especially when the media frames it as a, as a criminal uh, thing, right? Like the illegals, they broke the law. Well, we're talking about one minors who were not conscious of what was going on. Um, Two, we're talking about people who move their families for economic reasons, for violence reasons in Latin America and South America. Um, But the sort of humanity is stripped away and they're just criminals. They are lawbreakers, right? They, They broke the law, they don't. And so it sort of even justifies um, this sort of harsh stance against them, right? People want to feel like, like we are, you know, we, we take the, the laws very seriously. That's been like a mouthpiece in even Democratic presidents. Bill Clinton and Obama said that all the time. You know, a talking so. point, a soundbite. Yes. When you're criticizing the Democrats for not taking a stronger stand, you think they actually had the power to do that? I'm saying like the real problem with the Democratic Party is refusing to ask for a full DREAM Act, Mm -hmm. is refusing to push for the full version and instead doing this sort of half, halfway version. So think about this. This becomes then a problem that like we're worse off now had Obama not done anything because at least before you're not handing off the personal information of all these dreamers to the Trump administration. Wow. Like that information was not in the federal government's hands or in, you know, in, in Homeland Security. And now it is. So now it's not just that you you did a, a, a policy halfway. You betrayed all of these people and their families. It's not just that you didn't help the full way. You only went halfway uh, for, for these for the dreamers. Number one, it, the worst part about DACA is that it, it sort of tampered with the, the push for a full DREAM Act. So it got in the way of that. It was only, a, you know, a temporary, even when, when I was talking to people in Arizona with, with, that were DACA recipients, you know, they were happy to have an ID in the day-to-day practicality of it, but they were very like, this is not forever. This is completely contingent on whoever comes into office next, we know that at any moment, at any given time, this will all, this can all be, you know, this can all go really bad for us. So yeah, it's, it's a big failure of the Democratic Party to have not asked for, for a full protection, like full DREAM Act, instead of, of this sort of, you know, two-year limbo. To let's let's play the devil, the Obama's advocate. So he thought, had Hillary Clinton b- become president, what would have happened? Well, they would have gone on renewing two-year permits, right? They would have gone on with the with the criteria as long as you have a clean record. As long, also the criteria for this is completely up to Homeland Security. If Homeland Security says that you are a security threat because <laughs> they think that you are. Um, which in a lot of cases we've seen that young people are being accused of being in gangs when they're not and like there is no sort of like accountability or evidence or like proper due process for that. But okay, they, it would have just gone on with, with this sort of temporary program of you have a two-year permit to work 
and live in the US, but you're still not a full, you're contributing economically, socially, but you're still not a full member. You can't participate politically, for example, you, you don't have any sort of like real protections beyond the, the guest worker. So it's not even like it was going to be turned into something more permanent. It was just constantly going to be a piecemeal. Yeah, because as soon as DACA was passed, um, there, were, there were plans. The Obama administration wanted to pass DAPA, which is the same thing, but for parents. That immediately was shut down by a whole bunch of different states. So it's not like they were going to expand on it and build on it. And like there was some sort of plan to include families and parents. No, that had already been, they had already tried that and it had already failed. So it would have just gone on as, as this thing until uh, a DREAM Act was passed or not. To be charitable to Obama, he, let's say his idea was. It's better than nothing. It's better than nothing. And this will be while we move to pass a more comprehensive immigration right. plan. Right. Okay. But I'm, yeah. So it's better than nothing. I'm saying, I don't know that it is at this point. If you're undocumented and the Trump administration and Homeland Security now have all your information and not just yours, but your family, where you live, I mean, all this, all this personal info. I don't know that you're back where you started. You're worse off than where. Worse off, right. Yeah. So basically, I mean, Obama unintentionally uh, has armed the Trump administration with all this personal information that will enable him to deport people yes so i mean it's not you know i saw a headline today that says oh this will send the young people back into hiding i'm like well sure but can you really hide once you once you've completely handed over all of your the application process is very very tedious and and completely very rigorous right they're asking for they're going through a very thorough background check of you to be able to grant you this this permit. So now all of that thorough research exists and is being handed over to the Trump administration. Yeah, I would say it's uh, very easy for home like Homeland Security is equipped with with way more information that they had. So what can you give us an example of some of the um, incriminating or personal information that they now have that could be used to harm these people? So basically what we have now is triage. So DACA makes the day-to-day stuff easier, like cashing a check, being able to rent an apartment, the in-state tuition, being able to work, of course, uh, a bank account, an ID, all these things. But why, why am I saying that they're worse off? You know, what, is, what do I mean by that? I mean, the risk in being undocumented lies in your information being exposed uh, the passing of the information is a risk because then the discretion is so broad and actually determined, like your fate is then completely up in the air. This discretion is very, very broad and is not, you can be a model citizen or, you know, like a very, you can be the perfect person and still any sort of under the guise of a, a safety threat or, you know, not good character, you can be put into de- deportation proceedings. So being undocumented means that you have to be invisible. You have to keep your information private. This, this sense of um, identifying information and, and being able to have that confidential is what makes sanctuary cities sanctuary. The point is to keep your information private and limit access to that information to the federal government.
So the risk is in the why I say they were worse off is because the risk is now in that the information exists and the biometric data. What is the biometric data? So the process is you apply for the initial application for DACA. It asks for every single address that you've lived at while being in the United States. Um, it asks, you know, all your personal information. Um, and then you have to go to a biometrics appointment. And there you give uh, your fingerprint data and your photograph. So all of this goes into a huge Department of Homeland Security database, which is then cross-checked with different law enforcement databases. Um, and that's how they are able to figure out who's who and, and how to pick people up that they want um, and so forth, cross-checking between different databases like that. One of the main differences between Obama and Trump is that Obama, maybe just in rhetoric, you know, we look at the number, the deportation numbers and, and the data and the data tells a different story. But at least in rhetoric, mm. Obama had a, a, a narrative of felons and not families. And he wanted to use deportations in a, in a way that prioritized. Priority removals were those who had been convicted of criminal charges, had been um, guilty, you know, guilty of like uh, different different crimes. Um, it's not exactly what the data shows. The data actually shows a lot of, there's a lot of collateral damage. Um, there are a lot of people who get caught up in this pipeline that's been set up by Homeland Security and ICE and county jails. They work out of county jails. So any sort of arrest automatically is reported. Uh, biometric data is automatically reported to, to Homeland Security. So there are a bunch of policing programs in place that make it really difficult for you to not get tangled up if you have a, a, an encounter like with police that goes wrong. So you're saying even if it's not a felony? Yes, a lot and, of them have yeah. been very, very, like not violent crimes, they have been misdemeanors, have been failure to appear in court because they're scared, it have been traffic violations, have been marijuana possession. Mm. I mean, they've been, a lot, many, many, many cases um, where this is really, you know, gr grounds for deportation. So it's just rhetoric, the felons, not families. It wasn't like, oh, if you're if you're committing a misdemeanor, you get to stay. He was actually just using that. The point is, if you've committed crimes. Yes. On paper, priority is, a, is different. I mean, Trump came in and removed all of that. So that's the mm. big difference is now there is no hierarchy of removals. It's all free for all. Anyone is priority. Everyone is priority. Um, so there is no more hierarchy of like, this is who we want to stay. This is who we want to deport. So it's just as much of a priority to deport someone who has not broken any single law whatsoever. Yeah, yeah who has not been convicted, who has not been found guilty. As long as you are charged, you are eligible, wow. right? And that's, that's also, that's been the case since the Obama administration as well, sadly. Um, and especially with sheriffs and, and like I said, these, this works out of county jails and like sheriffs have to get reelected and politically this actually helps them out a bunch of saying, you know, I was responsible for, um, in certain places, you know, this gets you a lot of political capital with, with voting people. Saying what? That you were harsh on, on enforcing immigration laws because the federal government won't. So you I'm cracking down on yes. on illegals as on illegals, of. right? And like right. illegals, that's terrible. I, I can't stomach um, 
but yeah, they're not even humans, they're, they're illegals. There's been a real sort of like removing the sort of unspoken rules that were in place under the Obama administration. The Obama administration, at least, there were certain things that were like not okay. Like when you're dropping off your kids at school, that that's become a sort of practice, a new practice under the Trump administration. That was not something wow. that was, it was not never written anywhere, but it was sort of like an unspoken thing. And that's not being enforced anymore. That's interesting. So, I mean, people like you on, and, you know, people on the left and aren't kind of just your run-of-the-mill Democrats, we like to highlight and expose the fact that a lot of differences between Democrats and Republicans or Obama and Trump are rhetorical ones. But it does, those do make a difference in, yeah, in enforcement. Yeah. They make a difference just in, like, creating an environment. Discourse of, matters, yeah, right? Because right. even even just the repeated use of illegals it's yes and like you if you are an undocumented person i'm saying from experience you internalize that you're a child like you're a minor you don't you don't know and and you hear the way that the news covers this and it's traumatic right and it must embolden hate crimes and embolden people to take the law into their own hands and punish someone who's an illegal you feel like you're your simple, just your presence alone, you feel is like offensive. Right. Like, a crime. Uh, yes. And so, I mean, you, you asked for an example of, of like, what does this, you know, what, what do these things mean in, in practice? Mm-hmm. One of the things is the Trump administration says, you know, or you can be deported um, if you've broken the law, right? And, and now they're saying if you ever... Um, presented yourself like if you were ever presented yourself in a way where you didn't you were not upfront about you being an undocumented person like that's a crime if you ever worked without a any sort of permit which if you're here undocumented you don't have any you I mean you, you have no documents so all of your work is <laughs> under the table is without permission and that's a crime too so that's grounds for deportation so if I was here if this was happening when when I first came to the US I would easily be someone considered deportable like immediately because I worked cleaning offices for cash so that's me representing misrepresenting myself and you know committing a crime of like working when I don't have permission to work and I I would bear the responsibility of that not the employer right so what is going to happen next and what can be done to fight against it so what's happening now is they are going to stop processing new applications. They've said the six-month uh, deadline is when enforcement begins. You know, people that were up for renewal did it right away as soon as Trump took office, trying to like squeeze in one more one more renewal, hopefully, right out out of it. So it's the the permit will be valid. You know, the the date that it's that it has on it, but no new ones will be processed after that. So six months from now, no new permits. So that means, like I said, in day-to-day life, it's actually quite impactful when we think about renting an apartment, cashing a check, being able to, I mean, this means people can't work anymore. Uh, They're working now. Um, They may drop, a lot of them may drop out of school because you have to pay out-of-state tuition if you don't have this. So it it really is going to to be a, a... disaster to deal with after that you're sort of just waiting around to see what happens 
if you have no brushes with police, then maybe you are fine. If Homeland Security somehow, you know, starts, you know, takes on a new sort of approach of like, let's start deporting. They have plenty of, they have a whole database with people who are eligible for deportation now. So are they going to start deporting a lot more people? They haven't really, they haven't said that, but there have been way more. I mean, just in the first 100 days of the Trump presidency, as soon as he took office, there was a 40% increase in the number of arrests of immigrants from this time last year. So they're definitely being, you know, more aggressive in, in the number of arrests, in the number of immigrants detained. What's going to happen to them? It's very unclear so far. We know that they won't have renewals uh, of their permits. We know that their IDs will expire. Um, the only sort of relief, the only real you know, salvation would be if Congress passes some sort of immigration law where the dreamers are able to stay, some sort of like amnesty program. But otherwise, it's going back to, to uh, being in the shadows, except not really being in the shadows because you know that Homeland Security has all your information. On this episode, we talked about uh, Woody Guthrie and Woody Allen, and it's a very funny part. What uh, Bernie Sanders called, basically, he said, uh, "Democrats, if they want to take back the House, they they have to remember the words to the old song, <laughs> to the old Woody Allen song. Which side are you on?" Right. And it's he meant Woody Guthrie. It's not a Woody Guthrie song, but it was it was clear that he, that's who he meant. Woody Guthrie is famous folk singer, but. You know, one of his songs, one of Woody Guthrie's countless songs, you know, his most famous one is This Land is Your Land, which actually had a, a, a verse that was left off for many years because it was too radical. And, and something cool, going back to the difference between Obama and Trump, Pete Seeger sang that song at Obama's inauguration and he sang that final verse. But another song by Woody Guthrie, which is really beautiful, is the song Deportee. Mm-hmm. Uh, the lyrics are by Woody Guthrie. The music is by Martin Hoffman. And it's about a crash, a plane crash that happened on January 28th, 1948. And it happened at Los Gatos Canyon, which is in California, in Fresno County. It was a plane crash that killed 32 people. Four were Americans. 28 of them were migrant farm workers. And they were being deported from California back to Mexico. So talk about the kind of dangerous and lethal effects of um, xenophobia and anti-Mexican and anti-immigrant sentiment. This is a kind of stunning example of it. So not only were these people being deported, but they happened to, on their way back to Mexico, be killed. The the song apparently was uh, inspired when Woody Guthrie heard on the radio and read in the newspapers the coverage didn't name the victims. They just called them deportees. Only the names of the flight crew and security guard were listed. Here are Joan Baez and Bob Dylan singing Deportee at Woodstock. The cops are all in and the beaches are rotting. Oranges are packed in the creosote dumps. They're flying them back to the Mexico border. They paid all their money to wait back again. Maria, you won't have a name when you ride the big airplane. 
Thank you so much for talking to us, Karina. And listeners, if you want to hear the rest of our interview with Karina, make sure you join our Patreon. To do that, go to patreon.com slash the Katie Halper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Halper Show. You'll be really happy you did it because you're going to get the rest of this interview with Karina. Plus, you're going to get the rest of our show where we talk more about Joe Arpaio and we talk about the latest media smear against Bernie Sanders, against Jane Sanders. So make sure, again, you go to patreon.com slash the Katie Halper Show. Karina is actually a Patreon supporter, though we'd still have her on, even if she weren't. Uh Please follow us on SoundCloud, rate and review us on iTunes, Share share the show. Like us on Facebook, follow me on Twitter, that's Katie Halps, letter K, letter T, H A L P S. Follow Gabe, that's Gabe underscore Pacheco. Follow Karina, Karina in Brooklyn, K-A-R-Y-I-N-B-R-O-O-K-L-Y-N. Don't forget to come to our live taping Monday, September 18th, 7 p.m. at the Brooklyn Commons. That's 388 Atlantic Avenue between Hoy and Bond. And our special guest will be Jabari Brisport, running for city council in Brooklyn's 35th district. He is a Green Party candidate who has been endorsed by the Democratic Socialists of America, both the national and New York branch. And he's also been endorsed by the Black Lives Matter Caucus. Thanks again for listening to The Katie Halper Show. I'm Katie Halper, and I'm always joined by my co-host, Gabe Pacheco. The Katie Halper Show is produced by Florence Barrow-Adams and Josh Bregman. Our theme song is by The Ballet. We'll see you next week. Mm